Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Benjamin Carter Het. He is a professor of history at Hunter College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and he holds a Ph.D. in history from Harvard University. He is the author of The Death of Democracy. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, Mason Morfitt, I live in Maine. Uh, I spent most of my uh, career doing uh, conservation work. Uh, more recently, I've been very involved in climate change work. Uh, and more recently than that, I'm up to my nether parts in a couple of uh, local uh, campaigns for the Freeport Town Council. We've got uh, the current chair and vice chair are both up for re-election being opposed by a couple of troglodytes. And uh, so uh, I'm engaged in a bunch of backroom stuff to make sure the good guys uh, get elected. And uh, meanwhile, if that doesn't work, I spent five minutes yesterday online becoming a uh, ordained minister of the Universal Life Church. So if any of you guys are thinking of uh, hooking up with a uh, trophy spouse or reconfirming your vows, I think I can do that for you. <laughs> do it remotely on Zoom. <laughs> remotely. takes Literally takes five minutes. Wow. John. Oh, hi. Yeah, John Woodford here. Class of 63, out of 64. And um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan where I've been writing and editing for a number of years. Okay, Bill. Bill Collins. I grew up in the Boston area 20 years in the, after Harvard, 20 years in the Navy, and then Westinghouse Electric in Pittsburgh, and then came to the Savannah Riverside in South Carolina to work, and I've stayed here. I'm not working for pay anymore, but uh, you know, I worked in the nuclear business and environmental cleanup and various things like that, and okay. do a lot of gear work now. Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe, also class of 63. Before uh, The year before I went to Harvard, though, I spent a year in a school in Germany um, and uh, did my dissertation on a 19th century German thinker uh, and spent some time thinking about uh, the stuff that you're writing about. So very interesting. Okay. Uh, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, uh, living outside of uh, Boston. Uh, classmate of these guys, and um, after graduation, business school, Peace Corps, and uh, trusts and wills and estates in Boston most of my career. Okay, Ronnie. Uh, Ron Blau, class of 63, uh, worked in TV and video most of my life, still doing some of that, uh, but like Mason, volunteering in climate and in trying to keep the country as blue as possible. Um, I'm particularly interested in this episode because my parents were both from Berlin, left Germany in 33, went to Switzerland, came here in 36. Ah, okay. Jerry. Morning, Jerry Sikandi. I live in Pasadena, class of 63, law school, Peace Corps, Department of Justice, oil company, uh, state water board, um, worked for Audubon, California as a nonprofit, basically an environmental lawyer. Still working on climate change, air pollution, and water pollution. Okay, Peter. 
Yes, uh, Pete DeLisavoy. I <clears throat> live up in New Hampshire. I'm, uh, I was in class of 64, actually. And uh, then I returned to Harvard for another, for a very different sort of stint in the 90s. I taught at the extension school for seven years, for 14 <coughs> semesters. I saw Harvard from the other way around. And uh, as I say, I'm, I'm an editor and writer and, and uh, living up here in New Hampshire where the, where the weather's still pretty nice. <laughs> okay, good. Marcy. I'm <clears throat> Marcy Benstock. I head uh, Clean Wall Campaign and this Open Rivers Project. I'm uh, best known for being um, the information center in the iconic battle to get billions transferred from the Westway Highway and River Development Project to Mass Transit. Um, and I'm now uh, working on every aspect of an archive. <laughs> okay, Doug. Uh, hi, I'm Doug Shapiro. My wife and I live in Louisville, although I've lived in uh, most parts of the of the continental U.S., uh, except for the West Coast. And I spent 15 years living in Puerto Rico, uh, where I was uh, on the faculty of the Graduate Department of Marine Sciences. And uh, we're now happy in, uh, in Louisville. The weather is nice, and we're close to our family in southern Michigan. All righty. Uh, David. Uh, David Othner, also class of 63. And Doug, my father taught at the University of Puerto Rico in uh, the 1940s <clears throat> in Mayagüez. And so we lived there. I, I grew up in South America and Central America, uh, mainly in Guatemala, Puerto Rico, and Brazil. Went to college with these folks and have spent most of my life in public broadcasting, first in New York at WNET and now, the last 30 or so years in Philadelphia, WHYY. Okay, uh, Jay. Jay? Yes, well, I'm just in time. I'm Jay Pasikoff. Uh, <clears throat> I just got back from class today, Astronomy 101, and we're leaving uh, tomorrow for Helsinki for the uh, partial solar eclipse, about 50% solar eclipse. It's going to be visible throughout, uh, well, Scandinavia and even more in Kazakhstan, where I'm not going. Um, so I'm an astronomer anyway, and I study eclipses especially. I've been to 70, 76 uh, eclipses of all types so far, 36 total eclipses. And, uh, and I hope to see you all at some, uh, <laughs> at some eclipse in the future, such as 2023. Uh, in uh, Albuquerque or so in 2024 in Mexico or somewhere in the okay. United States. Mm -hmm. All righty, Jeff. Yeah, hi. Um, Jeff Fox, another classmate, uh, formerly a professor of sociology, now writing fiction, actually on the, on the same thing, themes that, uh, that you were writing about. So I'd be very interested in that. <laughs> Uh, where are you? Are you still in Spain now? You, where are you? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I'm in Spain. Uh, we haven't done a lot of uh, traveling with uh, given uh, the pandemic, so no, we're here. Okay, and uh, uh, Hap, are you on? Yes, I am. 
I, I'm just out. Of, I'm just out of my outdoor on 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 heated swimming pool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so introduce yourself to the professor. Here I am. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, I didn't want to miss this for anything because I I I think this is so relevant to where we are where we are today. I, I'm uh, Hampton Howell. I'm 63. I'm a I'm a psychologist, and, and I, I stay too busy. <laughs> okay, okay. And Professor Head, thank you for joining us, and uh, welcome. And tell us about the book, about your life, and stand. <clears throat> all right. Well, thank you, uh, my guys. I'm so honored um, to be with all of you today. This is really a thrill for me. Um, so I'm Benjamin Head. Um, uh, I was saying earlier, so I was uh, I was born in Rochester, New York. My mom was from New York City, but my dad uh, was Canadian. And very soon after I was born, my parents stuffed me in the back of a car and drove to Edmonton, Alberta, which is where I grew up. So I grew up in a place where it's cold and wintry and the politics <laughs> are totally reactionary. Um, <laughs> Americans picture Canada, I think, as some liberal paradise. Let me introduce you to my homeland. Alberta is not any kind of liberal paradise. Um, in any case, um, I became a lawyer. Actually, initially, I went to law school in Toronto at the University of Toronto, and I practiced corporate law there for a few years, um, doing every bad thing imaginable, and got fed up with it and loved history. Both my parents were history teachers, and I was an only child, so I got sort of the full blast of their pedagogic force uh, when I was a kid and <laughs> I guess made me a lover of history and so sooner or later I put two and two together and I quit law and went back to school and uh, got a PhD and so I got my PhD at Harvard 2001 um, and I taught at Harvard for a couple of years after that in Histon Lit and also at the law school um, and since 2003 I've been here in New York City uh, teaching in the CUNY system, Hunter College, where I am right now, where I teach undergraduates and also um, graduate students at what's called the Graduate Center. I teach doctoral students there. I love it, love it, love it, love it here. I love New York City. I love where I work. Um, I love the students that I have the privilege of of dealing with. <clears throat> so, okay, let me maybe say a few things. Um, Maybe it would be best if I say a couple words about how I came to write this particular book, and then I'll say a little bit about what the book says, and I think the point of it all will become quite clear. Uh, so to start with, um, I had been interested in the Weimar Republic um, in, in the German interwar democracy and how it fell and how the Nazis came to power. This is something I've been sort of obsessed with for many years, and I wrote a couple of books earlier that dealt with it. Um, I wrote a book that was published in 2008 on a young lawyer named Hans Litten, who uh, at the age of 27 subpoenaed Adolf Hitler to give evidence in a trial. This was before the Nazis were in power. And the trial was the trial of some stormtroopers, Nazi stormtroopers who had done what stormtroopers did in those days, which is commit violence against their political opponents. And Hans Litten wanted to show that the violence was programmatic and it was on Hitler's orders. And so he subpoenaed Hitler and examined him to try and make this point and really ground Hitler into the dust in an incredibly effective examination. Uh, and you can imagine what Hitler thought about that. And so as soon as Hitler had the chance, um, which was on the night of the famous Reichstag fire in February, 1933, just after Hitler had come to power, um, Hans Litten was arrested and was then subject to a five-year ordeal 
of being sent to various concentration camps, hard labor, torture, you name it. And finally, he died in Dachau in early 1938, aged all of 34 years old, a brilliant, extraordinary man for whom I have the greatest admiration possible. And I wrote a book about him trying to sort of set a monument to this man who's not too well known and should be better known. Um, And then from there, I'd gotten interested in the Reichstag fire, the thing that gave the Nazis, in a sense, the power to arrest people like Hans Litten. And so I set out to write a book about that, about which event there is a um, still rather intense controversy. I like to say it's the JFK assassination of German history, because on the one hand, there are people who think that one slightly crazy individual set fire to the Reichstag all by himself and no one else, including the Nazis, was involved. And Hitler just improvised brilliantly uh, on that and passed laws which basically made Hitler a dictator using the fire as an excuse, saying, oh, it's the communists, it's a communist coup d'etat. Um, so one theory is this was all sort of blind chance and this sort of crazy young Dutch stonemason named Marinus van der Lubbe broke into the building by himself and set fire to it. And then there are those who think the Nazis actually did it and used van der Lubbe as kind of a tool and sort of framed him, but the Nazis really did it so that the Nazis could say it's a communist coup d'etat and we're going to pass emergency decrees and arrest our opponents. And uh, I am of the view that it was in fact the Nazis. When I published my book on the Reichstag fire, which was 2014, that was not the main view among historians. Most historians at that time were of the view that it really had been Lorinus van der Lubbe all by himself. Uh, I dug up a lot of evidence, I think. I think it's compelling evidence. There's still some debate, but I think it's compelling evidence that the Nazis in fact did it. Um, So by this point, when my Reichstag fire book came out, uh, I had been working on research on basically kind of five years of German politics, kind of 1928 to 1933, when Weimar democracy really went down the drain. I've been doing this for years. Uh, and, And then I worked on a German translation of my book on the Reichstag fire, and that took me into 2016. And so by that point, I'd been doing this for, oh, about 15 years of fairly intensive research and writing on these five years of German history. And I was all set to go on and do something else. Um, I was working on a very different project. And then Donald Trump got elected. And um, basically, suddenly, to have the um, professional expertise that I had acquired of knowing a lot about like these five years of German history, suddenly that was something that was sort of in demand, uh, which was an entirely new experience for me. <laughs> uh, and um, my, my long-suffering and wonderful literary agent uh, said to me, you know, it would be great if you could write a book about Hitler-Trump comparisons. And I said, you know, I actually think the comparisons are weak because I think Hitler, the human being, is not remotely like Donald Trump, the human being. Uh, and my agent said, it would be great if you could do this. <laughs> and because I like my agent and he's done a lot for me, I said, all right. So I wrote a proposal that he could take to publishers. And people who work in publishing are very smart people. one after another publishers said clearly Ben knows quite a bit about German politics in the 20s and 30s but maybe not so much about American politics today and it's kind of uneven and it doesn't work and one after the other various editors said this and I was quite relieved so I thought okay (laughs) do this and then one very smart editor said well it's kind of uneven because Ben knows German politics from that time but not really American politics today so why don't we just have Ben write a short book 
for a general audience that kind of explains how the Nazis came to power with no reference to anything happening in the United States today, but maybe a little bit of subtext between the lines. And then I was very excited about that. I thought, okay, I can do this. This is something I can do and feel good about. And the result is this book, The Death of Democracy, published in 2018. So let me just say really quickly what I see as sort of the main point of this. Um, and, and I guess as preface, I'll say, and I, I know some of you will know this, that um, how the Nazis came to power in Germany is actually still today quite a highly debated issue among historians. There are a lot of different explanations. And, you know, for almost 100 years, a lot of really, really smart people have uh, dedicated themselves to trying to understand how could this happen. And, you know, I think the sort of basic paradox that a lot of us wrestle with is the Germany of the 20s was by almost any definition a pretty civilized place um, with um, a really uh, cutting edge state-of-the-art democratic constitution uh, which did all kinds of things the constitution of the United States still doesn't do like give equal rights to women. Um, it had a, a very sophisticated, complicated proportional election system, which meant that elections were kind of perfectly democratic in terms of a flow through of popular vote to outcome. God knows that doesn't happen in the United States now or at any other time. Um, and, and, you know, everybody knows that time in Germany saw an incredible flowering of artistic creativity, scientific creativity, literary creativity. If you threw a bomb in Berlin in 1925, you'd probably take out 20 geniuses no matter where you threw the bomb. So um, the fact that that could issue into a regime of such astonishing barbarism is a paradox that I think lots of us sort of wrestle with. And for that reason, I think this issue is really, really controversial, debated, written about. There are a lot of different explanations. And, you know, of course, it's like most things in history. Why you think something happened often says a lot about you, maybe not necessarily about the thing, but it may say a lot about you. So explanations for why the Nazis came to power often very much reflect the politics of the um, people doing the explaining. <clears throat> there are kind of politically left explanations that focus on capitalism. There are politically right explanations that focus on most people just aren't up to democracy and you give them the vote and they go and vote for a guy like Hitler. Um, and, you know, there are cultural explanations. The Germans are just sort of like this culturally. There are kind of long running explanations about the weakness of a, of a German uh, liberal democracy, all kinds of explanations. So I, I guess I say this by you know preface to the fact that take everything I say with a grain of salt, because there's no way I can reflect all of this. And there are people far smarter than me who have way different views out there in the literature. Um, but that said, here's my take. If what we want to explain is why did a significant amount of popular voting support um, accrue to this man, Hitler and his party, the answer to that question, I think, has to do mainly with the fact that what the Nazis really were politically, in the sense of the message that they put out in free elections and that people responded to, was a nationalist, anti-globalist message. It was really a message about Germany and Germans had been victimized by a good part of the world. They had been victimized in defeat in World War I. They had been victimized in a peace treaty, which almost all Germans saw as grossly unfair and brought with it um, reparations payments and 
the obligation to admit guilt for World War I, which most Germans saw as grossly unfair. Because of the reparations payments that Germany had to make uh, to several of the victorious World War I allies, um, a very complicated uh, financial structure grew up around those reparations payments, including a bank that was devised purely to facilitate the payments um, uh, in the Bank of uh, International Settlements in Basel. Uh, Germany's central bank, the Reichsbank, was based somewhat under allied control. Um, uh, that regulated Germany's currency. Uh, uh, Germany had to finance its reparations payments, so it borrowed money from uh, mainly from the United States, and there was all kinds of implications to that. Um, well, one of Germany's central bankers at the time said, all of these financial arrangements amount to an invisible occupation. And he wasn't totally wrong about that. There was a sense in which the financial power, especially of Britain and America, was being used to kind of control what happened in Germany. And many Germans resented that, and the Nazis were able to campaign effectively against that. There were also trade arrangements that many Germans didn't like, especially um, tariffs on agricultural goods that had existed before World War I had been cut. Um, and German farmers were exposed to ferocious competition, especially from grain from the New World, uh, which put a lot of them into bankruptcy and caused a lot of anger in rural areas. And this is not so widely known, but there was a sort of border security issue. Germany at that time had a new border with Poland, which of course was a new country after World War I or a revived country. Um, and Germany did not have the military or police manpower to control the border. And meanwhile, there had been the revolution in Russia and there was other political turbulence in Eastern Europe, which resulted in a massive um, migrant and refu refugee flow westward into Germany. Hundreds of thousands of people came, especially from Russia and crossed through Poland and crossed into Germany. Um, and there was a kind of nativist backlash against all that migration especially against the element of that migration, which was Jewish. A lot of Jewish people from Poland, from the Western Soviet Union were migrating into Germany. Um, and there was a really anti-Semitic uh, backlash to that, which resulted in a quite strenuous kind of anti-immigrant politics and a lot of rhetoric about the border and the lack of security of the border. So all of this goes into this picture of Germany being a kind of football for the world getting kicked around. And this is what the Nazis campaigned on. And they become, we can kind of trace this when we see how they did in elections. And when the Nazis really started to do well in elections, that started to happen around 1928, when they started doing well in state elections, Germany then and now is a federal state like the United States. Uh, the Nazis started doing well in state elections, especially in Northern and Eastern Germany, uh, where there are two salient characteristics. These were rural areas where people had been hard hit by some of this basically economic globalization um, and uh, uh, religiously Protestant areas. And there was a real affinity between being Protestant and voting Nazi in the Germany of that time period. Um, and then in 1930, there were national uh, parliamentary elections at which the Nazi vote shot up from having been totally nowhere in 1928 to 18.3% of the vote, which may not sound like a lot to you, but in the German party system of that time where there were a lot of parties competing, uh, that made the Nazis the second biggest party by seats uh, in the German parliament. And so at that point, uh, September, 1930, the Nazis and Hitler catapult into kind of major league status and they become a big factor in German politics. Uh, the other element here that I'll just quickly touch on is it's not like the Nazis were beloved 
by Germany's establishment political right. They weren't. Um, Germany's establishment political right uh, had one party in particular that represented it. It was called the German National, for short, anyway. Um, and that's a party that basically spoke for some kind of traditional establishment interests, notably the high command of the army, um, the traditional aristocracy, a lot of the leaders of big business, um, some important uh, figures in government service, high level civil servants. These were people who would tend to be kind of the establishment conservatives. And they, they didn't like Hitler or the Nazis. They were a bit of afraid of them, didn't trust them. Uh, the Nazis often seemed dangerously radical to them, in some ways dangerously anti-elite and in some ways dangerously, at least potentially dangerously anti-capitalist. Um, but, and this is a big but, one thing the Nazis clearly were was anti-communist and the conservative establishment in that time is really, 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 really worried about the threat of communism emanating out of the Soviet Union and from Germany's own communist party, which was gaining votes election after election and, and becoming one of the major political forces. So the Nazis are clearly anti-communist and that's one plus for them in the eyes of the traditional right. Uh, and the other thing they are is very nationalist and very pro-military which is another big plus for them, especially in the eyes of the army, especially in a time in which some of the centrist democratic parties in Germany have a habit of voting against military appropriations in the parliament and the army's getting fed up. And so the army would love to see uh, a party gain in strength, which is pro-military. So pro-military and anti-communist, those are good things. Uh, the Nazis' rhetoric, Hitler's lack of uh, prestigious background, he was from a very humble background, that's a negative. Um, but to many figures in the conservative right, there's uh, like establishment right, there's something here they can work with. And so basically, this is a complicated story that I, I thrash out more in my book, but the kind of like quick take here is for about three years or a little over two years, two and a half years from fall of 1930 into uh, very early 1933, there's a kind of dance going on here between the establishment right and Hitler and the Nazis, each trying to use the other. Um, Hitler understands that he needs the establishment to kind of open the doors to power. The establishment understands that in order to pursue their agenda, uh, pro, especially pro-big business and pro-military, in a modern state, they need some substantial political base of support in the population. That These guys, they're all guys, they're modern enough to know that you can't run a dictatorship with zero support in the country, you need a base. And so they think the Nazis might be that base because at least they're you know militarist and anti-communist. They don't want the Nazis to have real decision-making authority, but they'd like to sort of enlist them as the troops behind their agenda. And so this dance goes on with each trying to use the other through a lot of twists and turns of German politics in the early 1930s until eventually they kind of arrive at a deal basically in uh, late January, 1933. They arrive at a deal whereby the uh, elected president of Germany, the World War I field, field marshal Paul von Hindenburg, um, exercises his constitutional prerogative to ask somebody to be chancellor. And he asks Hitler to be chancellor and form uh, uh, an administration, form a cabinet. And Hitler forms a cabinet, which is basically a coalition between his Nazis and figures of the establishment right. And so on the 30th of January, this is what comes into office. Hitler leading this coalition cabinet where the traditional right think that Hitler will be sort of a puppet that they can use. And mm -hmm. Hitler thinks he's gotten a lot of what he wants, but not all of what he wants. 
And then it's also a complicated story, which I'll just like quickly give you the gist of. We can always come back to some of this. Um, over about a two to three month period, Hitler astonishes everybody by showing that he is far more cunning. He's far more ruthless. Oops, sorry, I have this automatic light here. He's far more dangerous than anyone had imagined in the sort of traditional elite who very much underestimated him, basically because he came from a humble background. They assume that equates to not being very smart. Um, and Hitler turns out to be very smart and very cunning. And with sort of one move after another, he outmaneuvers the kind of establishment forces, pushes them aside, and is able to assert his own authority as dictator, in part through the Reichstag fire that I mentioned and the decree that followed, in part through a few other uh, political moves. So that by late March 1933 already, you know, just two months into his time in office, he's already pretty squarely uh, in dictatorial control. And then over the next year and a quarter or so, he sort of bit by bit expands that dictatorial control until by August of 1934, it's pretty much absolute. And at that point, things are really set for the outcomes that we know are going to follow. Things, you know, the compass is really set for the Second World War. And in a certain sense, although this is a little more complicated, it's kind of set for the Holocaust. Um, and so that's the that's the quick uh, wow. that's the quick narrative. I think the parallels will have emerged to you already. Uh, you know, if I look at American politics today, the thing I see that worries me enormously is the analogy to the conservative establishment right making common cause with a more radical and destabilizing force. And I think to my eyes, that's been the narrative in Republican politics over the last, uh, you know, six-ish years or so, six, seven years. It's my understanding that after World War I, Germany was a rather broken country. Uh, its economy was in shambles. Its currency was rather worthless. Inflation was rampant. Where did Germany get the resource, and they had reparations, where did Germany get the resources to build such a, an incredible armed forces and what were the other countries looking at that doing at the time? Yeah, so um, th that's a really important question. Um, so in, you're right that Germany was in a shambles after World War I, but it recovered actually astonishingly quickly. And you know, if you look at sort of the economic statistics, by 1927 or so, um, it's back to the levels of productivity and like GDP and so on of 1913. Uh, so at that point, it's kind of recovered from the war. Now, of course, then the Great Depression hits, and, and that's that's another setback. And it's after Hitler comes into power that Germany starts to come out of the Great Depression. Partly a coincidence, but partly not. And the really direct answer to your question uh, as to how it was that Germany could equip itself to become such a threat to the world in 1939 uh, has to do with the absolutely kind of relentless scale of economic and military mobilization that Hitler directed. There's a really brilliant book by this, uh, on this by a really brilliant historian named Adam Tooze who teaches at Columbia. He wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called The Wages of Destruction, I think is the title, um, which is precisely about this. And what Tooze shows is that um, the Nazis were unprecedentedly ruthless, among other things, in kind of conscripting the wealth of Germany for defense production. Um, and they kept Germans at a 
relatively not high standard of living, even in the 1930s, certainly by comparison to say Britain or America, um, because so much of the wealth of the country was being sort of absorbed and channeled into um, the defense related industries. So it was that sort of willingness to just really have a war economy from the get go that gave Germany the punch it had in, in 1939. But, but even there, like one of two's is maybe more controversial points is even at that, Germany was basically a middle income country that ultimately did not have the economic wherewithal to fight a war against the coalition of enemies that it fought in World War II. It, it could never be strong enough economically to do that, even though Hitler kind of gave it the best shot. Uh, John. Hi, I, I, well, to me, it kind of breaks down often to uh, which side are you on? Because I, I find this interpretation, in my mind, I would say is soft on Nazism. And I'll tell you why. First of all, your notion of Germany as a civilized place and as the and who could have foreseen? Well, you ever heard of the, the uh, genocide of two groups of people in Namibia alone by the Germans? right in the early 1900s, not to mention the Belgians wiping out people in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And we can go on to places in South America and Asia and look at the slaughter by these so-called civilized places. So I would think that that concept that we're dealing with civilized places is uh, to be questioned. Then we have the issue of, of the uh, role of the industrialists. I think uh, Eric Villard has written a book called um, The Order of the Day. And what it does is show that the, you know, the Krupps, the Farbens, the others, the, the big industrialists bailed out the Nazis. And how did they do so well after World War I? They, they were all in league with the United States uh, huge corporations. And so that's one reason they could build back up. And they funded the Nazis and, and you know, saved their bacon because, as you did point out, they would rather be, uh, they would rather have Nazis than communists. The, um, I was just at a four-day, round-the-clock, a, a full-day conference on Jeff Ely, E-L-E-Y. He's one of the leading scholars on uh, Germany. Yep. Uh, the whole thing was about fascism. They had about you know, a couple dozen scholars there. Not one of them got into the question of the anti-Nazis. And who were they and what was their thinking? For example, uh, uh, Georgi Dimitrov, the Bulgarian communist, was one of the first analysts of fascism tying it to capitalism. (laughs) And uh, Dimitrov was not mentioned. Uh, We have the American journalist George Seldes, S-E-L-D-E-S, who was over in Germany at the time, interviewed Hitler, who also outlined the... uh, not just the Nazis, but the anti-Nazi movements. And what would it take to stop uh, Nazi movements? Uh, None of the scholars even mentioned these things. There's so much talking about the Nazis and the nature of the Nazis that they ignored the nature of the anti-Nazis. We said that you said that Christians were, um, you you implied that being Christians meant that they might be more prone to follow the Germany, but we have Pastor Niemöller, we have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we had Christian movements uh, resisting the Nazis. What were they like? What happened to them? And then, uh, last of all, we have Rebecca Donner, who did the biography 
of her, um, I think it's her great aunt or someone, called All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days. One of the greatest books that I've read recently, All the Frequent Troubles of Our Days, in which she follows the life of an American woman who married a German and lived over there as the Nazis were, were gathering and who joined the movement, which included communists and also non-communists, uh, working in cells because they would be imprisoned, beaten, tortured, and killed if they got caught, which, which she was. And, uh, and so there's material to look at the struggles against the Nazis that I think illuminate more what's going on in our country. I mean, and what Dimitrov, his key argument is, is that when capitalism uh, decides it's going to make its profits through military accumulation and the militarization of the economy, then the ideologies and nationalism and other stuff follows. But the impetus, he argues, and I think he shows it, is the militarization of the economy. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We saw the we saw Biden and the Republicans take less than a, a day to throw multiple, multiple, multiple billions into our budget, even before there was a Ukrainian war. That's where our wealth as a country is going. We can't have a, a civil uh, economy worth a damn with all the money going into the military. There's only so much. And that's what's going on in our country right now. We can't uh, have the money poured into uh, Ukraine because uh, someone wants to uh, dominate a region of the country for this corporation or that corporation or monopoly. Well, we see what's going to happen. We're going to have an, uh, ideologies and politics here that's going to be more like Nazi Germany's if we don't watch out. Well, um... I actually, I, I think those are a lot of great points. Thank you. I, I actually agree with most of what you said. I, I, I probably differ on a couple of things, but um, but you raised a lot of great points. So like uh, I made a couple of notes here uh, as, as you were talking. Um, first of all, on the imperialism question, absolutely. Um, uh, Germans had carried out genocides, notably in uh, what's today Namibia, in those days, German Southwest Africa between 1904 and 1908, horrific things. Um, striking fact that one of the colonial governors responsible for that uh, was named Göring and his son Hermann Göring was one of the most prominent of the Nazis. So there's even in terms of personnel continuities, there's a direct flow through. Um, I guess I, I would like, uh, I would partially defend my claim about the civilization of, of 1920s Germany by saying that was the previous regime, not the democracy established um, after World War I. And the people who were responsible for that genocide were not the same kinds of people who were leading what I would refer to as the creativity and the positive creativity of the 1920s, the artists and a lot of the you know liberal or centrist or left-wing political activists um, of the Weimar period. Um, let me see. Um, Dimitrov and other resistance figures, yeah, uh, actually, uh, Dimitrov was sort of a hero of mine. I wrote about him a lot in my book on the Reichstag fire. He was a, a truly remarkable figure and um, put on an extraordinary show when he was put on trial for the Reichstag fire uh, in the fall of 1933. He was brilliant, fearless. Man would have been a fine uh, lawyer. Uh, would have been a fine actor and was without doubt a brave man. 
Um, the, the idea that capitalism is kind of inherently at the root of fascism is, is one of the threads in the research. So like what I said at the outset, that there are a lot of different interpretations of where Nazism or fascism comes from. And that's one of them, that it comes out of capitalism. Um, to my mind, that has validity for the Germany of the late 20s and early 30s insofar as uh, the role that some leaders of big business played in putting the Nazis into power. But as a kind of all-purpose explanatory thesis, I think it doesn't quite work. If it did, wouldn't every capitalist democracy become fascist? And, and I think they don't all. But, um, uh, but you know, um, I, tef I definitely take your point, and I agree with you, that um, resistance figures, to some extent, show us the contours of Nazism. I mentioned, I wrote a book about Hans Litten, who was an anti-Nazi fighter. And I feel that his experiences do show us something about the contours of fascism and, and probably somewhat indirectly explain or maybe illustrate would be a better word, some of the contours of what we're living through right now. Uh, Rebecca Donner's book on Mildred Harnack, absolutely brilliant, powerful book. Rebecca's actually a friend of mine, uh, so I'm a little biased, but I think it's a fabulous book. Um, and just one last point. Um, Christians as an opposition force. What I said, actually, it's very specific. It's, it's Protestant Christians who were politically linked to Nazism. This is, a, this is a pretty factually demonstrable thing. And here I'm talking about voting patterns. Um, uh, the Nazis did well in Protestant parts of Germany. They did much less well in Catholic parts of Germany. The Nazis, when there were free elections, the Nazis did not get a lot of votes, relatively speaking, not a lot from the West and the South, which tend to be the Catholic areas, the Rhineland, Bavaria, um, they did very well in the North and the East, which are Protestant. Um, so there is that carryover. Now that doesn't mean, whoops, sorry, this might light again. Um, for sure, there was resistance to the Nazis from religious figures out of religious motives. And, and you mentioned Niemöller and Don, uh, Bonhoeffer, two of the outstanding examples, without any doubt. And both of them were uh, Protestant uh, political figures, pastor and theologian respectively. Um, but they're somewhat exceptional. I mean, they, they, they were sort of outside of the mainstream. Uh, on the whole, there's, there is a pretty close uh, correlation between being a Protestant, uh, you know, especially Lutheran, uh, and, and being a Nazi. There was some, there's some flow through in terms of nationalism. There's an, a kind of inherent element of nationalism in German Lutheranism, Lutheranism from the very sort of fact of Luther. Um, it's a little different uh, for Catholics. So. Um, that that's sort of the significance of that point. Otherwise, thank you very much for your point. Yeah, I'd say Martin Luther King Jr. also was exceptional. Well, yeah, like in, in every way like conceivable. Yeah. Okay. You're talking you're talking to someone who I've watched yeah. the video of the his speech at the March on Washington. I've wa I've watched that video a number of times, and I swear to God, I've never gotten through it without bursting into tears. So uh, there's no bigger fan of. Dr. King and myself. Yeah, right. it, it is important. Uh, it is important, I think, to think about who the Nazis saw as the other. And I do think there are um, some striking parallels in, in some ways to our situation um, today. So, yeah, without a doubt, it's kind of Nazism 101. The, the, the Nazis other was Jews. So there's just no doubt about that. Um, that said, I, I think it's, it's important to see what use politically the Nazis made of anti-Semitism because that's kind of important. The, the first thing is to note is that um, especially as they got closer to power, 
which is to say after about 1930, Nazi politicians spoke a lot less about anti-Semitism than they had before. This, and this comes back to what I said about, they were mostly talking about the global economy and other aspects of, they didn't use the word globalization back then, but that was the concept they were talking about. Um, they didn't specifically say much about Jews because they knew the Nazi strategist Hitler and his propagandist Josef Goebbels, they were nothing if not politically astute. And they knew that that anti-Semitism was for them kind of what we call in America a base issue. Uh, so for people who were really, really highly motivated Nazi activists, party members, um, you know, volunteers for the stormtroopers and so on, uh, anti-Semitism was very much a mobilizing thing for them. But it wasn't for the great masses of voters. Uh, and the Nazis knew they had to talk about something else uh, to attract voting support. But, and this is also very important, but um, that didn't really mean that anti-Semitism went away. Um, uh, a, a fellow historian of mine um, at the University of Toronto, uh, a professor named Doris Bergen, puts this point really, really well. I've heard her say this in a couple of lectures. She says that for the Nazis, anti-Semitism was sort of like a dust bunny in the sense that it's the thing that sort of glues together a bunch of other positions. So that the Nazis were nationalist, that they were militarist, that they were highly, highly masculinist and misogynist. Um, all of this, these positions were sort of held together <clears throat> by using in an almost abstract way the idea of Jews and Jewishness as sort of a glue to hold this whole package together. And for the Nazis, and they didn't invent this idea, this went back to political anti-Semitism in Germany before World War I, but Jews were sort of seen as kind of all-purpose symbols of everything about modernity that the political right didn't like. So you could link Jews to big cities. You could link Jews to modern art, which you know the right didn't like. You could link Jews to capitalism. You could link Jews to specifically department stores. There was a huge thing about department stores in those days because the department stores tended to be owned by Jewish entrepreneurs or Jewish families. And it's kind of like a Walmart thing. If you're like a sort of small business that's being put out of business by a department store, and if you're like Lutheran, you can also quite conveniently say, well, it's the Jews who are putting me out of business. So there was always this sort of anti-Semitic angle to that. And so anti-Semitism is kind of holding together all these things. And the Nazis made use of that in the sense of, in a way, using anti-Semitic discourse sort of concealed, like they sort of did dog whistle stuff. Um, and, and you see this in Nazi rhetoric leading up to like 1933, like there would be sort of code words you know, Hitler would say stuff about, oh, uh, the the spiders of international capital. And everybody would know, I think, this is a dog whistle meaning Jews, but he's not saying it. He's not sort of foregrounding the anti-Semitism as an issue. It's just serving as this kind of glue to hold together another ideological package. Um, the other thing I wanted to say on this question of sort of othering is that um, there really was a quite striking you know, I would say red state, blue state division in the Germany of the 20s and 30s. So, you know, I've mentioned that the Nazis did well in like Protestant, rural, North and Eastern Germany. What did they hate? They hated Berlin. The Nazis hated Berlin. Because Berlin for them was everything that they hated about the Weimar Republic in general. Like Berlin was disproportionately Jewish. 
um, about 7% of Berliners were Jewish in a country where under 1% um, of Germans were Jewish. Um, Berlin was like hyper-modern. It was like this sort of concentrated, you know, zone of, of hyper-modernity in, in the arts, uh, in industry and business, in media and journalism, uh, you know, all the sort of, you know, famous um, sexual experimentation of Weimar Germany, that you have a, a pretty visible gay rights movement at the time, all kinds of, you know, nightclubs where there's all kinds of stuff going on. You know, all of this sort of, you know, sort of sum it all up into, you know, really right-wing Germans. This is basically everything they don't like about the modern age concentrated into one place. And there's all kinds of rhetoric you can read from Nazis or even just generally conservative Germans from some other part of the country saying, you know, Berlin's not Germany. We need to, you know, sort of take it over and make it German again. And everything about Berlin is like sort of some international Jewish poison that's ruining the rest of the country. Um, and so that's another aspect of, of like Nazi othering. Like in a sense, Berlin, just as with Jews, Berlin was kind of shorthand for everything that they hated and wanted to abolish or change in, in the country. Mm -hmm. Mason. Uh, I was wondering if there was a, uh, a significant component of German society on the left, uh, excluding the communists for the, for the time being, but were the labor unions or other, any other element of the left in Germany in a position to defeat Hitler early on? And if so, why didn't they manage to pull it off? Yeah, that's, um, the answer is sort of yes. I mean, there was, that was there. So like until 1932, until, to be precise, until July of 1932, Reichstag elections held at that time, until then, and all the way from 1918, um, actually, all the way from 1912, um, the biggest party in terms of vote share and seat share was the Social Democrats, who were, you know, sort of moderate center left. Um, so, you know, at almost all times in Weimar, the Social Democrats are the biggest battalion. The Nazis finally passed them in the summer of 1932, but up until then, they're the biggest party, and they remain after that the second biggest party. Uh, their vote share dropped down to about 20 percent in uh, 1932 and in the last semi-free election in 1933, but that still put them second. Um, the question of what they, why didn't they stop Hitler? What might they have done? That's a, a complicated and sort of speculative question to which I think there are a number of possible answers. Um, one answer is the social Democrats were, um, always trying to be seen to be good and dutiful, uh, both in terms of respecting the rule of law and the constitution and of being good patriotic Germans. Uh, and I think sometimes they worry too much about being good and sort of doing the right thing and not enough about winning. Uh -huh. And footnote, I, I think the Democratic Party in the United States tends to suffer from much the same thing. Right, right. If I had any influence in the Democratic Party, I'd be like the Karl Rove of the Democrats. I would be ruthless and unscrupulous and dishonest as hell as long as it won elections. I don't care how nice I'm being if I'm winning in this con like in this context where I think the political opposition is really, really unspeakably awful. And, and I think I would have thought that way if I were a social Democrat in Germany in 1932, but they didn't. There's a key moment, and I talk about it in my book, where in a sense it was open to the Social Democrats to push an option that would be unconstitutional, that would violate the Constitution, but would keep Hitler from power. 
And they preferred actually to have Hitler, Hitler in power in ways that they thought were consistent yeah. with the Constitution uh -huh. than to stop him. And it's pretty easy in hindsight to say that's a mistake, although it's also maybe easy to see why they did that from their subjective standpoint in early 1933. Um, there also, there's the factor, you mentioned organized labor. The Social Democrats were very much the party of organized labor. That was kind of their troops. And, you know, in 32 and 33, there's stupendously high unemployment. So that kind of limits their capacity to act. And in particular, it limits their capacity to do something like a general strike. Um, right. uh, they had done in 1920 to stop a right-wing coup d'etat. It, it had been stopped cold by a general strike, which shut down the country. Not really an option when literally 40% of your workforce is unemployed. Um, and I think maybe last but not least, the Social Democrats by 32, 33 were kind of demoralized. They, they were the core of the democracy. The democracy was their democracy. The Social Democrats were the architects of Weimar democracy. And by 32, they're exhausted. Like they've been fighting this battle to maintain democracy for by this point about 14 years. And they're just exhausted and demoralized. And some of the leading figures are, are literally physically sick and, and they've kind of had enough and um, they're just not able to kind of keep it going. Mm -hmm. I think how Germans deal with their past is kind of like how Americans deal with their past, which is to say, it depends which German we're talking about, right? Like, you know, if you ask, what do Americans, how do Americans think about Jim Crow or the Civil War? Well, it kind of depends who you're talking to, right? In terms of how they think about it. And it's much the same with everything about Germany's past. Um, when I started um, sort of being professionally concerned with Germany and going there a lot, it was different than it is now. Like in the 90s, uh, Germany had sort of gotten to a point where you know, basically all the bad Nazis were dead and uh, opinion had gradually shifted over to the great majority of Germans viewing the Nazis with horror and with shame, uh, which wasn't the case necessarily in the 50s and 60s, by the way. Um, and um, I'll give you a sort of illustrative point. Um, this had the effect of kind of inhibiting even what you might call sort of normal patriotism. Um, which I actually thought was a bit unhealthy. I even thought that back then. So, you know, for instance, in the 90s, if you said as a German, I'm proud to be German, that would mark you as an extreme right winger because only an extreme right winger would say that. An ordinary person would know that it's kind of taboo to say that because it's heading down the line towards nationalism and that leads to Hitler. So, you know, most Germans would not say that. A, a friend of mine, a history professor over there, told me once that, uh, he would never want to say that there was anything bad about the bombing of German cities during the Second World War, because that would mark him as a, a Nazi. Now, that has changed. We're in a very different environment now um, with the rise of the, uh, the party, the AFD, the Alternative für Deutschland, uh, which is sort of the Trumpist party, so to speak, in Germany, um, gets around 13, 14 percent of the vote in national elections. Um, their take on the past is very different. Um, and uh, even since about the late 90s, there's been a growing trend in Germany. The Germans are much more willing to say things that they weren't before, in particular, that they were victims of World War II as well. The Germans were victimized in, in bombing. They were victimized in um, expulsions of Germans out of some regions after World War II. About 13 million or so German, ethnic Germans uh, were driven out of Czechoslovakia, out of Poland, out of Romania, a few other places, and ended up as refugees, mostly in, in West Germany. 
And there's much more willingness now to sort of say, look, see, we suffered. It wasn't just us, you know, victimizing other people. We were victims too. And it used to be that was really not PC to say, and now it's a lot more acceptable. And to your point about the sort of cultural tradition, that's one of those things that, you know, especially before the Nazis, Germans tended to take enormous and quite understandable pride in. I mean, there's an old saying that Germany is the land of poets and thinkers. And it's true, you know, if you think of like classical music, I think a quite disproportionate number of, of the greatest classical composers were German. Um, a quite disproportionate number of the greatest philosophers were German and very significant numbers of great literary writers, painters, you know, blah, 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 all of that. Um, and that too is something that if you, in more recent years, if you kind of went all out saying, oh, there's this great German cultural tradition we should be proud of, many Germans would suspect you of kind of nationalist apologetics and of not being willing to come to terms with the darker side of, of the German past. And again, I think that's something that's in flux. I think it's becoming much more okay in Germany to you know, openly express that kind of reverence for these kinds of German um, cultural traditions without you know, immediately being dismissed as, oh, you're, you're just a nationalist apologist. Uh, you know, what about the Nazis? Well, listen, thank you so much. We've been talking for about an hour and uh, 15 minutes. Thanks for coming on. It was great. Thank you. It's really, thank you. It's really a pleasure. And like I said, really an honor. Um, I'm really great. glad you've had the chance. Thank you for your questions, which were all really great and stimulating. Thank you very much. Okay. See you, everybody, then. Bye. 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 That was Benjamin Carter Hett, author of The Death of Democracy. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.